This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. And what is on the examination table today? Well, we are going to be talking about The Purge. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge sanctioned by the U.S. government. Weapons of class 4 and lower have been authorized for use during the purge. All other weapons are restricted. Government officials of ranking 10 have been granted immunity from the purge and shall not be harmed. Commencing at the siren, any and all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 continuous hours. Police, fire, and emergency medical services will be unavailable until tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. when the purge concludes. Blessed be our new founding fathers and America, a nation reborn. May God be with you all. Excited to be talking about The Purge. The Purge franchise is one of my favorite uh, franchises of the 2010s and one of my favorites overall. Yes, some of the entries are stronger than others, but I do consider it an exceptional example of world building. Rules are established and followed and built on or changed in logical ways. Ideas and themes are allowed to grow in ways that just kind of make sense. We root for characters to survive, but we are wrecked when and if they do, knowing that the trauma they've experienced will be inflicted on them again in 364 days. Because this isn't a film or franchise where we have a central or side character with a disability, or explicit mentions of disability, I want to frame this episode on examining how The Purge impacts individuals with disabilities and discuss how our ongoing pandemic connects to some of the ideas and themes explored in these films. I must issue the following disclaimer. Race is a focal point of The Purge, of the Purge franchise, and we see the various ways the NFFA, the New Founding Fathers of America, have used their power to further racial violence and systemic racism. 
America has a history of disenfranchising black indigenous people of color, and systemic racism is a tragic and lingering reminder of this and uh, an indication of ours, and I do mean ours as white folk, as refusal to examine and dismantle these systems providing us privilege. The challenge is that those of us that are white and disabled um, face are not at all comparable to the challenges disabled people of color encounter. I bring this up because I don't want us to lose sight of that. And I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that white individuals with disabilities, like myself, operate with privilege, both in reality and, uh, I think, even in the world of the purge. So, that important bit stated, let's get to our plot synopsis. Since we're focusing on the purge uh, as an event, as opposed to specific plot elements that you're going to find in any of the uh, four films, I thought it would make more sense to give a timeline of the purge, giving us the history of its formation through its end, insert air quotes here, uh, at the end of 2016's purge election year. So, here we go. In 2014, the NFFA take power. It's a party unaffiliated with Republicans or Democrats. We see throughout the film series, it's modeled on the kind of alt-right and neoconservative movement that became increasingly more vocal and prominent during Obama's administration. And I think during this time, uh, it was often referred to as like the Tea Party in the media. Also at this time uh, in the purge world, America's economy has pretty much just completely tanked, and there's a steep increase in crime. What is the NFFA's solution to addressing these issues? Eliminating targeted parts of the population. Enter the Purge, a social experiment where all crime is made legal for 12 hours. Envisioned by uh, someone called the Architect, who is a sociologist who kind of came up with this idea, and we see this character in... 2018's The First Purge, the sociologist uh, played by Marissa Tomei. It's uh, kind of promoted as an attempt to get America's inherent aggression out by means of ex extreme violence. Although in reality, the NFFA sees it as a way to manipulate um, the lowest and what they deem the most costly rungs of society into destroying themselves. The 28th Amendment introducing the purge is ratified in 2016, and the first purge, called the experiment, is planned for the following year. The success of this experiment is key to the NFFA maintaining power. So this gets us to the events of uh 2018's The First Purge. It takes place from 7 p.m. March 21st, 2017 to 7 a.m. March 22nd, 2017 and occurs on Staten Island. 
residents of Staten Island are offered $5,000 to stay in their homes. And further bonuses are provided if individuals participate in the experiment. As long as they record um, and document their participation. So they are issued... Um, so when they essentially sign an agreement that they're going to stay on the island, they are issued um, these contact lenses that um, serve as cameras. So if you're going to go out and participate in this experiment at any capacity, you're instructed to put on these contact lenses. So in addition to needing this experiment to be a success so they can maintain power, um, they need it to be a success so that they can roll this out nationally. It doesn't go as planned, with most of Staten Island residents opting to find shelter as groups um, or to party it up. And uh, the NFFA had kind of planned for this to some degree, and they send in um, kind of hired militia made up of um, white supremacist, white nationalist groups uh, to incite violence and chaos. The NFFA uses this to claim the event a success, and the first purge ends with the NFFA announcing their plans to take the purge national as early as the following year, which they do. So our first national uh, purge event takes place in March of 2018. But sticking to kind of the events of the uh, film timeline, we then fast forward to 2022 and the events of 2013's The Purge. So the first Purge that came out in 2018 is a prequel. This bit of time can best be defined as an indoctrination. So we are now in a world where The Purge has been going on for um you know, at least three years on a national level. The Purge has become a holiday and in, and uh, is treated as such by the population or most notably the well-off and white segment of the population. People have gatherings, parties where they drink, they eat, and they watch footage of their fellow citizens being killed. We see other traditions as well, such as these blue, these blue flowers called batisias uh, being a symbol of acceptance of the purge. So when uh, the purge was the experiment on Staten Island, um, along with the contact lenses I mentioned, they were also given just a really small uh, group of these flowers. It's supposed to uh, symbolize rebirth. Um, you know, this is very much um, kind of in the vein of make America great again. This is supposed to be a rebirth, uh, a revigoration of America. Um, so individuals in the experiment on Staten Island were given these uh, flowers, but outside of that, not really given any instruction of what to do with them. But we see in The Purge, um, that they place them outside of their home, and it's an indication of folks that they support the purge. We 
also see that industry has formed around the purge. Our protagonist, a family called the Sandins, that are, are a family that has acquired wealth via the selling of high-priced security systems. So our patriarch, played by Ethan Hawke, is a kind of security system salesman, which sells these high-priced security systems to well-off uh, individuals so that they can feel protected during the purge. This family is targeted by a group of purgers uh, when the individual that this group is wanting to kill, a veteran experiencing homelessness named Dante Bishop, although he does go unnamed, I think, in this film and in the uh, purge anarchy. Um, so he is given refuge by the Sandin's youngest son, um, further demonstrating how the NFFA has established a purge to target specific segments of the population, really focusing in on low-income uh, individuals and individuals that have been impoverished. So this takes us to the following year, 2023, and the events of 2014's The Purge Anarchy. And this marks the period of what I'll call the resistance of the purge, a resistance group in part led by Dante Bishop uh, from the previous film is, uh, has uh, started to kind of take root. The NFFA continues to push messaging to highlight the repeated positive impact of the purge. However, the purge is not having the expected impact, likely in part to test numbers being inflated so they've been using the night as a cover for um, mass assassinations. So again, it's all about, you know, at the end of the purge, being able to say it was a huge success. So many people participated in the purge. So many people were, um, you know, cleansed. And these were all the individuals that gave their life, um, you know, so we can have a better country. That's really the message that they want to be able to promote at the end of the purge when they give their little statements. And so they are starting to, um, we, we know from the beginning that they've been introducing um, elements to make sure that they're able to produce those optics. So then we fast forward uh, quite a chunk to the year 2040. And we see ourselves in a period I like to call the retaliation of the purge and any events of the uh, purge election year. The, this is the film that this kind of timeline follows. So after 30 years in power or close to 30 years, the NFFA is challenged by a popular presidential candidate running on an anti-purge platform. The activist group we are introduced to in the previous film, The Purge Anarchy, um, has also grown much larger and members have arrived in Washington, D.C. in advance of the purge during the election year to carry out a plan to take out members of the NFFA during a purge mass. And so the purge mass is where members of the NFFA and their families uh, attend kind of a religious ceremony. Think of like the midnight masses that um, are often held on Christmas Eve. It's basically that but not that so um this activist group is planning to um target members of the nffa during that 
particular uh, event. So, and, you know, this also, I think, comments on the holidayish zeal that the purge has garnered uh, since it's been in place. In order to take out the opposition for office, so the NFA has rolled back restrictions for this year's purge, uh, protecting certain groups of individuals and limiting what weapons can be authorized. So in that little sound bit that I played with kind of the rules of the purge at the beginning of the episode, um, it says, you know, government officials of a certain ranking cannot be targeted. And so they've rolled back that restriction so that, um, you know, is putting their opponent at risk. Again, they're doing everything that they can to kind of keep themselves uh, secure, but they know that they have such, uh, I guess, uh, in, you know, an indoctrinated following uh, behind them that they're able to, um, you know, plan for her to be at risk during this year's purge. So the anti-purge candidate survives, though, um, despite kind of uh, various attacks, and uh, wins the following election. The new president, named Charlie Roan, repeals the 28th Amendment, but purge supporters have started rioting. So that's the general timeline of the purge at current. And I pieced this together from a wonderful timeline via Screen Rant, which I will link in the show notes um, because it goes a little bit um, more in-depth and includes um, a bit from uh, the television series, The Purge. Um, and it was uh, especially uh, beneficial to use in kind of hashing out a little bit of what happened before the events of the film. Um, I also pieced this together at the beginning of 2013's purge, uh, the purge anarchy and the purge election year, you get, um, you know, kind of a text scroll and some surveillance footage that kind of, uh, lets you know the timeline. So, um, the only other thing that I'll add is that, um, the last film of the franchise, uh, the supposed last film of the franchise was supposed to be released last year, uh, called The Forever Purge. And of course, due to COVID, that was pushed back, but is slated to be, um, released, I think, July 9th of this year. So, um, uh, fingers crossed that that will happen. And I think that that is supposed to follow uh, the purge election year. So should set us in either 2040 or 2041. So with our timeline established, let's start to unpack the impact of the purge as an event on those citizens with disabilities. The purge is an event designed to eliminate individuals that the government has deemed expensive. Translated, that means individuals relying on publicly funded government-supported programs to eliminate barriers to needs, food, medical care, etc., um, and success. So things like uh, 
classroom and workplace accommodation. So all of those programs that we know to help support those efforts, um, they do cost money, um, which is why we pay taxes. And the NFFA wants to pocket that money, as well as money that they're getting from other organizations, such as the NRA, National Rifle Association, and other groups, um, instead of using it towards those programs. So like I mentioned when breaking down the timeline a bit, America's economy is struggling, and being able to eliminate these programs will just give them more money um, that they don't have to spend. You know, if you are eliminating um, individuals that need these programs, there's no need for the programs to exist. That is the rationale behind it. So, a bullseye has been firmly uh, placed on the back of poor communities, but I want to introduce some statistics from the National Council on Disabilities to show how individuals with disabilities are kind of represented in that. So, people with disabilities live in poverty at more than twice the rate of people without disabilities. Um, I think in 2018, um, individuals without disabilities living in poverty in the U.S. was, uh, I want to say, around 14 or 15 percent, and um, individuals with disabilities living in poverty was, I want to say, 26 or 27 percent. I know um, uh, the uh, numbers that are provided in this report provided by uh, the National Council on Disabilities does kind of like a 10-year timeline. So it kind of fluctuates, but um, the most current data from 2018 shows that there's, you know, essentially a double um, number there. People with disabilities make up approximately 12% of the U.S. working age population. However, they account for more than half of those living in long-term poverty. More than 65% of the 17.9 million working age adults with disabilities participate in at least one safety net or income support program. So again, those programs that I was mentioning before, um, that the NFFA wants to simply do away with. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, only 32% of working age people with disabilities are employed compared with 73% of those without disabilities. Students with disabilities often graduate from high school at rates uh, nearly 20 percentage points lower than students without disabilities. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is that, you know, individuals uh, with disabilities, particularly children, are kind of set up uh, for failure in a lot of ways within the system. Uh, during the crucial time immediately after the onset of disability, when individuals may still have some attachment to labor force, the current social security system encourages applicants not to work, which often leads to poverty. Only 6% of federal transit funds are allocated to severe rural communities. And that's something that the purge so far hasn't really touched on, is how this event impacts individuals in rural communities. So um, it will be interesting to see if that's at all something that the forever purge um, 
hits on. Again, they say it's going to be the last film of the franchise. I find that very unlikely, um, but we'll we'll see. And currently, an estimated 228,600 people with intellectual or developmental disabilities and other significant disabilities work for sub-minimum wage. I'm using these stats because they show a, cycl- a cyclical nature of poverty, meaning that um, while some of these programs may provide assistance while continuing, um, while they continue to kind of keep individuals in poverty, employing individuals with disabilities, albeit at a much lower rate than non-disabled folks, is not a system that fosters that fosters success or self-reliance and keeps individuals dependent on these programs. It should be noted that when the benefits of the purge are being spouted by the NFFA, one of the things that they um, or their sycophants often uh, bring forth um, uh, pretty straightforward is a decrease in the country's unemployment uh, rate. Well, this is language to reinforce to masses what individuals are disposable disposable and making sure that those individuals have little to no way to access the things that they need to survive. Secure shelter. I mean, the stand-in endorsed security systems are a little out of the price range. Weapons for protection, things like that. So, let's talk an- about another aspect of the purge that disproportionately impacts individuals with disabilities, and that is the cutoff of medical care during the purge. Hospitals and other medical facilities are protected but locked down during the hours of the purge, and emergency medical services are suspended. So that was something that um, was also mentioned in that little warning or uh, kind of PSA to um, that was at the beginning of the episode that kind of outlines the rules of the purge. Individuals with significant healthcare needs not only uh, need to survive an attempted purge, meaning someone coming in and attacking them, uh, but, you know, they have to hope that they do not develop any uh, severe health complications during the purge. Because you can't go to the hospital, you can't call for an EMT, emergency personnel. You're kind of uh, out of luck there. Now, being in the hospital at the time of the purge, given you can't afford it, as I don't think the NFFA's platform includes Medicare for All, is really your only hope. Um, but it's worth noting here that only certain medical facilities are protected in this manner. So psychiatric hospitals and rehab centers aren't protected. And that's something that isn't kind of gone into in the films but is something that plays out in the Purge television series. So I'm not going to go into the TV series just because I don't think it really adds um, a ton um, to kind of the the world building in and of itself. Um, and plus, you know, we're focusing in on the films here. Um, but that is something that I wanted to uh, note there. So as an undercurrent to all of this it circles back to 
um, something that I discussed with Midsommar, and that's a society, a system that places a very low value on the lives of vulnerable, marginalized communities. Uh, the purge anarchy even gives us a very uh, kind of Aristupa uh, like sacrifice at the start of the film. We get to know Eva, her daughter Kelly, and Eva's dad Rico as they are preparing for the lockdown of the evening for the purge. Eva is a waitress, making barely enough to support her family, including paying for her father's medications. Rico gets upset when she gives him his medication that she picked up on the way home from work. He tells her it's unnecessary, it's a waste of money, um, but after a few uh, minutes, he kind of calms down a bit, apologizes to his daughter and his granddaughter for the outburst, um, and kind of, you know, blames it on his disdain and frustration and just all these complex feelings he has about the purge. He hates it. Um, and so, um, you know, he tells them that he just wants to sleep through the purge. He wants to sleep through the night. And so he retires to his room telling them, you know, don't disturb me. I just want to sleep. So later on, Callie goes to check in on him and see if he wants dinner, only to discover that he's not there. And he's left a note explaining that he didn't want to burden them any longer and has offered himself as a purge sacrifice to a rich family in exchange for a large sum of money to be transferred to them. It's a pretty gut-richingly sad moment that underscores not only how disposable certain lives have become, but how the rich have the ability to have their purge victims delivered alongside their Uber Eats orders. I think a lot of this begins to illustrate ideas that we've seen emphasized amidst our current, our current pandemic. The uh, severity of COVID-19 constantly undermined uh, because individuals with underlying health issues and older individuals are most likely to have severe symptoms related to illness and or die. The anti-maskers claiming it is their their right, their often God-given right, they say, uh, to not comply with general public health guidelines at the expense and well-being of the general population. And so this really emphasizes the idea that I think is prominent in The Purge, which is individual rights versus the well-being of the general public. Um, before, um, you know, a purger kills or attacks someone, they often will state that it is their right to be doing this, but it's at the expense of the right of the individual that are harming to protect themselves. Um, so it's, um, you know, again, you see, have seen that in the pandemic where people saying, well, no, it's my individual right. If I don't want to wear a mask in public, indoors, I shouldn't have to. But understanding that doing that puts, um, you know, other individuals at a great risk, um, I think is something that you see play out here. And, you know, again, going back to the, um, 
kind of devaluing of individuals' lives. You know, being an, an individual with a disability, you know, if I cannot tell you how many times, you know, when I've expressed some hesitation about, you know, going out and doing something, um, or, you know, I'll be talking to, uh, a friend and, you know, say as, you know, we're about a year into, uh, lockdowns, um, and it feels really lonely and isolating and to see other people going out and engaging in what is, you know, risky behavior for me, um, you know, their response is usually, well, yeah, I guess just stay home. But, you know, again, making choices, um, for yourself that may be at the expense of others is something that's really prominent here. Another aspect that I want to kind of bring in, and it kind of connects back to, uh, what I was talking about with the, uh, medical centers, the hospitals being locked down. One of the things that we only get, I think, the smallest glimpse of in the films is, you know, what these hospitals look like once, uh, the purge has ended. And, um, you know, much like, uh, particularly the beginning of the pandemic and when we were seeing surges, um, in certain areas where hospitals and ICUs were overflowing, we see that here. And one of the things that has been a theme to come from that are individuals with disabilities not being able to get care in medical settings because individuals with COVID-19, um, are, um, you know, all the resources are being allocated to treating those individuals. And so you have resources that are really minimal in a huge demand. And so I would imagine at the end of the purge, let's say I need to go to the doctor. Well, I'm not going to be able to go to the doctor probably for some time because she's going to be treating or he's going to be treating or they're going to be treating, um, you know, individuals that are in some shape or form recovering from the events of the purge. So, um, you know, limited resources, uh, for folks there, um, kind of connected with that too, is just, it, this is something that always sticks out to me. Uh, you know, the purge is, I think, a, a prime example to discuss this, but in any kind of horror film, particularly horror films that center around an event like this, um, you know, Individuals that survive the purge, um, are not surviving often unscathed. Um, you know, bullet wounds, stabs, uh, all of that is going to leave, uh, individuals a little worse for wear. And many of those individuals are going to have long, uh, lasting impacts on their health and their well-being and their ability to kind of get around in the world, thus making them individuals with underlying conditions, individuals with disabilities. So, you know, then it kind of sets up that cycle again to where these individuals are now at another level of disadvantage when the purge comes around because they no longer have these 
uh, access. They no longer have the access to uh, things that they may now need um, to survive. So, um, you know, it's just, like I said, it's something that in a lot of horror movies, you don't see what the repercussions or the, uh, you know, the long-lasting impacts of these horrific events are on the individuals that experience them, both from, you know, a physical standpoint, which is kind of what I'm talking about here, but, you know, that aside, the mental and emotional trauma that these individuals have also experienced. And I think, you know, having gone through a pandemic, that's all at play here too. Um, you know, individuals that have um, recovered from COVID-19, many have uh, long-lasting impacts on their health. They're called long haulers. And, you know, now they're needing to have ongoing treatment where, you know, maybe prior to uh, having COVID-19, they were healthy. Um, so just, you know, things that I think going back and watching uh, this series this year, um, kind of have a tradition of watching it every 4th of July, like any good American should. Um, you know, it was something that had really, uh, kind of struck a different chord this year. And so I was really excited to, uh, talk a little bit about how this franchise, which may not for some seem to have any kind of relevance, to disability really does, I think, have, unfortunately, some real relevance now. So I do think that that is a good place to wrap things up. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. I say it every time, but I appreciate it more than anything. If you can take a few moments to subscribe, uh, as always, we are a proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream Paw Squad over here. So please subscribe to the Anatomy of a Scream feed in any of your podcatchers. Um, do that, please, first and foremost. And then rate and comment. Do all of those podcasty things that we so, so begrudgingly ask you to do at the end or at the beginning for some of each episode. Uh, so that, you know, it not only gives us really good feedback, um, but it also helps other people find us. You know, again, being part of the anatomy of a scream pod squad is great because it's not just me on the feed. You get some really other amazing content. You've got horror is so queer. You've got, um, uh, development hell. So many good pods in this feed. So you definitely want to subscribe so you don't miss anything. Because if you like this, if you're listening to this and are enjoying it, you're definitely going to find some other stuff on the feed that I think you're going to like as well. So please do that. And again, thank you for listening and until next time.
Pod Squad.